You are now tuning in to Let's Be Honest with host Just Jonda. Welcome to Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda. I'm your host, Just Jonda, and I am so glad to be back with you to continue my nonstop November. I know I've been gone a couple of days, but family comes first, and I had to travel briefly out of town to uh, be with some family members. Everybody is great, and, um, you know, so I'm feeling great that I got to spend time a little time with some folks making sure that they were doing well too. I live further away from my immediate family than everyone else. So they always have an opportunity to get together and kind of do little, you know, fun stuff or mental health checks with one another, but not necessarily good for my mental health when I'm so far away and don't get to check in with them. So I did that this weekend and just focused on that. So I'm sure you all will forgive me for a brief step away from nonstop November, but short of my word, you will have me for the rest of the month. So let's get started. It's not going to be too long of an episode, although I always say that, right? <laughs> but this time is true. I'm still um, still in a little bit of uh, travel recovery. It, as you get older, those quick turnaround trips take a little bit more out of you than they used to, but we'll make it happen anyway. I'm going to blame it on the rain. So today, episode 36 Mad marches, choked monkeys, meddling mistresses, and pissed off jurors. You're probably saying, dang, that is all over the place. But it's all going to make sense. Even our deep dive is going to be kind of quick, but it'll all come together. So and first things first, we're going to go into some of the news that we missed not being together this weekend. Particularly the, Ma- the MAGA march. Um, I'm really not sure what it was called. I know that someone called it the Million MAGA March, and I did see that online, although I'm not really sure if that was the actual name of it. I think they were trying to be a bit facetious there. But the bottom line is it was a march. uh, It was a red march, basically, or rally in in, uh, support of current President Donald Trump who, as we know, still will not concede the election despite his cases being thrown out left and right. I mean, one of them was just downright embarrassing. His attorneys were in court, in a court of appeals. And I I know this is a quick aside, but this is how crazy it is. They were in in court and they were arguing that whole thing about observers, Republican observers not being allowed in the room, which many of us have already known was BS. So the judge says, so there were no observers allowed in the room. Is that what you're telling me? 
like there was nobody. So the attorney says something to the effect of, well, it was a non-zero sum. And the judge said, okay, as an officer of the court, you're going to answer the question with a number. Were there or were there not people in the room? The attorneys had to admit, yes, there were uh, poll observers in the room. They just felt like they should have been closer or able to see better. So the judge is like, okay, then we don't have anything to talk about. So that was the end of that. So those are the kinds of shenanigans that's going on. And quite frankly, like, do you really want to risk your credibility on this? This is the cross you want to die on? Seriously? Your entire career? Or maybe you're retired. Maybe you're independently wealthy. There are way more attorneys with a lot more money than I do. So maybe it doesn't matter if they look crazy. And then a lot of these, I, I don't think there's any black ones marching in church. So they're going to, I'm sorry, in the court. So they're going to have a lot more credibility and get away with a lot more than someone who looks like me would. Trust me, I practice in Virginia. I see it all the time. So back to speaking of Trump supporters and the delusional Back to the MAGA rally on Saturday. It actually um, was not quite as big as they thought it would be. Of course, Trump was saying tens of thousands, etc. The park police, who always does the count for these big events, they'll take aerial views, whatever they have to do. They estimate there was about 11,600 attendees which is nothing to sneeze at. Like, I'm, I'm not knocking that. Considering that we're in the middle of a pandemic, whether you support uh, President Trump or not, I would assume that there are some people somewhere, no matter what color they uh, feel that they need to hang their hat on, that no is just not the time, not the time to be out in a rally with a bunch of maskless mouth breathers yelling and marching and whatever the hell else they're doing that just turns into a giant spray super spreader event. Thankfully, most of the people appear to be run-of-the-mill supporters, just folks that got in their trucks, cars, RVs, whatever, and showed up. There were some of the groups that were expected who did show up. There is evidence that individuals like QAnon, the Proud Boys, those types of people who wanted to make their presence known. I hate even calling them out because all it does is give them some attention. So the bottom line is some of the usual suspects in terms of these groups that have been given some life that no one was really paying much attention to over the years, the new incarnation of the Klan, I suppose, they were out there as well. To their credit, there did not seem to be an overwhelming number of incidents. In fact, most of them seemed to stay clustered in one general area, which again just gives me the heebie-jeebies generally, but certainly as it relates to the pandemic. Ew. Um, and I think the biggest concern that anybody probably would have had after the fact by the time it was over is litter, beer cans, and super spreading of COVID. There were a few clashes with some counter protesters and a few people that got rowdy, but 
I think that given that it was kept relatively small and it was more of just a rally show of support type thing, not terribly organized in terms of a, a bunch of speakers really getting folks all riled up and you know, talking crazy and what have you. Um, nobody up there with their fists raised, yelling white power. And, uh, I think that that helped. So, um, you know, it, it was, it almost seemed like one of those uh, biker rallies. And, and I'm not saying this because of anything as it relates to the attendees or the fact that they were mostly white or anything like that. No, I'm just referring to that because biker rallies, and I've seen several, are kind of like that. They're kind of free-flowing. Everybody shows up. You're, you all have the same goal. You all love bikes and what have you. And, you know, there may be some music and some vendors and, you know, might be somebody that rallies the crowd very much. But for the most part, it's almost like a giant tail, tailgate party with bikes. And that's kind of what this looked like. I mean, there was nothing where C-SPAN had to go in on it and, and have a bunch of speakers up there. It was really one of those things that the news was aware that it was going on, probably like had somebody just sitting on the edge of their seat to see if something was going to jump off so they'd be ready to report on it. But pretty much they kind of just sort of hung out and ultimately they started maybe around Friday, the early comers. And um, even the clashes they had with anti, I mean, with counter protesters really seemed to be when people deliberately sort of peeled off from the general mass that was in, I think like sort of in and around Federal Plaza and um, veered onto in, in the area of like Black Lives Matter way and whatever, which you already know is going to cause drama. Now, those two areas in um, just for those of you who don't know the area are very close together. I mean, they literally, the streets practically run into each other, but you know, there was still a way to kind of keep this, keep the situation under control. And I think the police were more than aware of the fact that once this, if this thing spread particularly onto that, then folks would have taken it as a level of insult, given what to many people, particularly people of color, feels that Trump represents, and by extension, what those who support him, and in this case, having rallies to continue to um, promote this dialogue of a rigged election that other than the folks on television who are getting a mic put in front of their mouths, like the uh, Gene Piros and, and Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell's, most regular people, even politicians who may not necessarily want to say it publicly, know that it wasn't rigged. Um, just like in Georgia where the Secretary of State is just being given a tremendously hard time, and he's a Republican. And the reason why he's been being given a hard time is because he stands by the fact that the election that he oversaw in his capacity as Secretary of State was not rigged. 
whatever you want to say about Georgia, it was not rigged. And quite frankly, if it was rigged, kind of like the messiness that went down the last time with uh, in 2016, I'm, I'm sorry, in 2018 with Kemp and Stacey Abrams, the rigging would have been in favor of the Republicans. Hello? That's why they have a Republican governor right now, if we want to travel down that little highway. So that's the Million MAGA March. Um, much ado about nothing concerning. Very concerning that, again, there is just this undercurrent in the United States that scares a lot of people. And 70 million people voted in a way that scares a lot of people because, again, for many, a vote for Trump does not necessarily, uh, for many, it doesn't represent that you are merely a Republican. You can be a Republican all day long. I tell people that all the time. I crisscross on my ticket for certain issues all the time. And then there's just people who I genuinely like. I know, I feel that they are good at what they do. And so party notwithstanding, those individuals are going to get my vote, it, especially individuals that I actually know who uh, in that job that they are running for, or like in my county, we had a couple of incumbents. They are people who, from what I see in my community, I admire the work that they do. I don't have an issue with it. I don't see a reason to knock the boat, rock the boat on somebody who is unproven and hasn't given me anything to sink my teeth into that is so much better than the job that I see this other person doing. So that other, that person, whomever it is, is going to get my vote no matter what party they are. And so I say that to say that a lot, uh, that there are people who are a lot, a lot more savvy than they're giving credit for when they're voting. Sometimes, even when people do vote straight down the ticket, you don't know what their core values are in terms of whether or not they have, they're one of those people who just vote straight down the ticket just because it's there, or that they just genuinely align with all of those things straight down the ticket. The issue for myself and quite a few other people, not the fact that you voted Republican. It is the vote for Trump specifically, especially given what he has come to represent in terms of really basically taking, uh, showing the emperor with no clothes in America. Now, don't get me wrong. We all knew as people of color that racism was alive and well. We had no uh, illusions about systemic racism, all of those things. But people at least handled themselves better about it in terms of being like, yeah, I'm a racist and what? F you. Yeah, so what? So-and-so got beat up. They should have blah, 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 blah. Those kinds of things are very concerning, and they should be very concerning to all of us. And for a lot of people, that is what he personally represents. And of course, a, a few others as well. But in, in this particular case, we're talking about President Trump. So off of that, seems like I took a bit of a deep dive, hadn't planned to, but there you go. 
Next, just a couple of other little side gigs. So you guys know that kid who became an adult star with tons of tattoos. No, I'm not talking about Chris Brown. I'm talking about the one that became famous initially for having their haircut um, looking almost like Ellen, Justin Bieber. Well, in recent years, you may have noticed that he's kind of been, I mean, he still sings and stuff, but he, if you follow it, followed it all, he always talked about this spiritual journey that he was on and really heavily followed, like, like as his personal minister slash, slash guru, is uh, this guy from this church called Hillsong Church. So this minister was, you know, Justin's guys traveling with him, all wrapped up with him. Well, recently, as of last week, he was relieved of his duties for moral reasons. He admitted to an affair. He's married with three kids. And now the mistress is calling him out. Now, screw that. You were down for the funky get down. And because he was in the public eye, it's not like he didn't know that he was married. Again, quick and dirty, my view on this. She's not the one who had the commitment to his wife. He did. So ultimately, it is his responsibility. But you don't get to, you know, call him out and you know, be all like, oh my God, yeah, he's he's a dirty dog. No, I'm going to give you a pass in terms of people not coming down on you just because you're the quote unquote mistress. Because again, you weren't the one who was who had the commitment here. But shut it up. Sometimes when you get the pass, you just take the pass and go and sit and freak down. That's That's what I think of her. Plus, his wife isn't leaving, so there's no point in twisting the knife. She's already said it. And as we can imagine, that's probably the real reason why the mistress is mad. And she claims she wanted the affair over anyway. Okay, then just stop. Whatever you have to tell yourself, girl. Um, so that's really pretty much what that is. We know that the relationship between he and the Biebers because, you know, Justin Bieber's married. We know the relationship between them has ended because the Biebers, Mr. and Mrs., have stopped following the minister on social media. And it being 2020, apparently, when you follow or unfollow somebody on social media, that signals the status of your relationship. Yes, I know. Forget about calling and having a conversation. Or how about it just not really being anybody's freaking business? Yeah, you unfollow them on social media. You know that there's people who track it, so they're going to know. It's your way of making a statement without making a statement. This is a move that uh, probably got, it, it was probably patented by, or it should be, by uh, the, the reality TV figures, particularly the Real Housewives. That's when you know things are up or down with them, whether or not um, uh, whether or not when they had the reunion and even though the details aren't out yet, you know, whether or not it went well and how the next season is going to go, depending on who, who has unfollowed the other during the break when we're waiting for the next thing to jump off. So that's what's happened. So that is our meddling mistress. Girl, sit the hell down. Next, we have our choked monkey story follow-up and that is with the very sad 
sad, sad fall, although I doubt it'll be for long. I mean, he's he's got credentials that are great. Um, he'll probably just have to stick with writing and not be on television for a while. But once, you know, he writes enough stuff that keeps him out there, he'll be fine. So the New Yorker has announced that it has officially fired Jeffrey Monkey Choke Tubin. Now, why am I calling him that? Well, unless you've been living under a rock, I'm not really going to say that in this particular case. It was a big story, but um, given that he's a he's a writer I don't, and, and a political analyst and legal analyst, I don't know if it was really quite as big to everybody, but it certainly was anecdotally great on social media and, and the meme game on this was hilarious. So Jeffrey Tubin, long time, long time writer for many uh, outlets, but um, in recent years, The New Yorker and constantly on everything, CNN and everybody. He's, he's, he's a legal analyst as well, but he's, and he was the chief legal analyst for CNN. So this is a big deal. Well, he was on a business call, and this happened about a month ago. He was on a business call, you know, everybody's Zooming and everything, everybody's working from home. And towards the end of the call, now that more details have emerged, it appears that while he was on the call, he had, and it, that's the part that wasn't clear before, he had another screen, like another laptop or whatever up, and he was looking at something entirely different because you can't possibly just wait till your freaking work call is over. Hello. So the thing that he was looking at was something that must have been of the prurient interest type because he was essentially choking his chicken, spanking his monkey, whatever. And so when he did that, <laughs> I called this choke monkeys. I got to change that to spank monkeys. But at any rate, while he was doing that, what he did not realize is that he did not completely close out his computer with his colleagues. Now, I'm not sure if uh, it's been a while. I can't remember if there was a break in the meeting or the meeting was ending and there was just like a few people still kind of on there. But at any rate, whomever was still on the call for whatever reason they were there ended up bearing witness to, I can only imagine, tremendous embarrassment for Tubin that he had been masturbating, whether the entire time or began to at, at some point during his business call, and it resulted in him exposing himself. So however that camera angle was, Whatever he did, sat back in his chair, stood up, whatever, they weren't just aware of what he was doing because of hand motions or facial. He actually, it, it is it described that he actually exposed himself. Uh, again, inadvertently, but nevertheless, it happened. So in a statement from the New Yorker, they said that... Um, I'm writing to share with you that our investigating re investigation regarding Jeffrey Tubin is complete. And as a result, he's no longer affiliated with our company. And that came from um, Stan Duncan, who's the chief people officer at Condé Nast, who owns the New Yorker. 
and it said, I want to assure everyone that I take workplace mass matters seriously. We are committed to fostering an environment where everyone feels respected and upholds our standards of conduct. And um, yeah, it's I, I don't know if there's any real way to have gotten around this unless perhaps there was a, you know, unless he got counsel involved and they did a whole sex addiction thing and he sought treatment and all of that, that there is at least the possibility that they may have been able to work something out, especially if with him being a writer and, and all of that, it might, I don't know how that would have worked out so well with the CNN part of it, because, you know, you see his face, he's a legal analyst there. But again, since he's the chief legal analyst, I'm sure he could supervise other people. And I don't see anything about his job with CNN as their chief legal analyst, but I don't know how that works if they just kind of rotate people in and out. Um, yeah, it's it's really unfortunate because I get it. And certainly in the era that we live in and the example that we are trying to make, those of us who promote a safe workplace culture and not just the workplace, school, et cetera, um, and have worked many years for far too long because it seems people love pretending that they don't get it. <laughs> but uh, I, I get why a bright line has to be drawn, especially given that they actually saw Lil Jeffrey. Um, but it's, it, it is indeed unfortunate because it does speak to the possibility that you just might have some kind of a problem if you can't finish a simple work meeting for which, given his experience and years in the business, he's, I am sure he is making a shitload of money. I mean, if not just from the New Yorker, because I don't, again, who knows what his contract is, just his overall career, the fact that he's the, you know, he's the analyst on CNN and all of that, this man, I'm sure, has a pretty freaking good living, and that is a hell of a risk to take, but at the same time, who's to say that wasn't the excitement for him, which again, sounds like the mofo has a problem. I'm not giving him any passes, but, you know, the attorney in me is always going to kind of look at both sides of it. However, I do get it. I don't disagree with the firing. Um, maybe he just didn't think it was worth the fight. I'm just pointing out uh, as devil's advocate, there could have been an avenue for him to attempt to fight it, even if it was the whole uh, sex addiction trope that, and I'm not saying that sex addiction addiction isn't a real thing. It is, but we know that some folks trot it out quite conveniently when they get into trouble. I think the thing that hurt him the most with this is the fact that there was a meeting going on and, you know, he, there was an active act going on while he was dealing with his coworkers. So despite the fact that it was may not have been directed and again i'm not in his head i'm just gonna assume giving him the benefit of the doubt 
despite the fact that it may not have been directed towards them for them to see, as in he decided in that moment, I'm just going to go ahead and expose myself to my coworkers. It, while it may not have been anything as nefarious as that, um, it is problematic to it putting it mildly that he did it during that time because even if they weren't on a zoom call and he was in his office with the door closed and his secretary just came popping in the office and he was sitting at his desk you know going at it with himself that still would have been a problem you are still uh involved in inappropriate workplace conduct and it doesn't matter that you're at home especially when your co-workers are on the line with you and there's a live camera so um I, I don't really see where if the new yorker was attempting to do exactly what they said and let's face it cover their ass uh, with their employees particularly their female employees he didn't really leave them any choice unless he asserted some type of psychological defense. So farewell for now, Jeffrey Tubin, as it relates to the New Yorker. I don't, I still don't see anything about what CNN is going to do, but again, I think that's more of a loose thing. Um, we'll see him again. He's a writer. In fact, he has a book that, I'm almost positive he has a book that uh, was about to come out. So um, I think that was him. Yeah, I think it was him. Um, so we'll we'll see. You know, it's, it, your talent is always going to speak for itself. And he's not a black man, black woman, or any other person of color in terms of these things being the absolute death to your career and automatically being lumped in with Bill Cosby or R. Kelly or whatever. Um, I, I just don't see that happening in this. He does have a rather checkered past as it relates to um, cheating on his wife and a girlfriend and, you know, like a whole fake abortion and all kinds of nonsense. But again, even that, most of us who know about that or talked about that, it's because we did the research, not because that was made a big thing, even when this story came out. And for most people, they would have dragged all of that back and forth through the mud as well. And it, that that just doesn't seem to be happening, which probably speaks to a certain, if nothing else, speaks to a certain level of respect that his colleagues have for him. And I'm not mad at that. So again, we'll see him soon, just not tomorrow or at the New Yorker. Next, a quick deep dive into the update on the Breonna Taylor situation. Unfortunately, can't really call it a case at this point, given how the charges ended up coming down. But we're going to talk about it. I'll be right back. Once again, you're listening to
to Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda. And as always, I'm your host, Just Jonda. So as I mentioned at the end of the last segment, there has been an update in the Breonna Taylor situation. Yet another member of the grand jury, now this is the third one. This is a woman who sat on the grand jury and she is saying pretty much the same thing as the last two, which is that she felt that, especially looking at how everything unfolded and essentially, I'm just going to put it in layman's terms, feels like they got played. And not only did they get played in terms of the information that was, and more importantly, the information that was not given to them, but also in the lack of options they were given as it relates to charging the other two officers. Because again, she is another one who is corroborating the fact that the grand jury was never even given an option to charge the other two officers, one of whom is clearly the officer that actually shot the kill shot. Because the person who was charged at least right around the time of the grand jury, in fact, actually, I think when um, the initial press conference was given, the, uh, the AG said that at, based on the forensics at that time, it did not appear that the bullet that actually killed Brianna was fired by the person that got charged. That was why he was only charged with those endangerment charges for basically just shooting into the apartment next door because his shot was not the kill shot. Now, they, they were sketchy on who fired the the shot that killed her but we can assume it was one of the other two that the jury was not even given chart given um an option to charge because those were the other two individuals shooting into the apartment the interesting thing is it's it's funny because she said she even used the words that i've used here before when she said that it was like the okay corral by admission of all of the testimony um and i quote she said to she spoke to the um associated press and she said all of them went in blindly you really couldn't see into that lady's apartment as they explained to us there was just a tv on she said of of taylor's louisville apartment the police quote went in there like the okay corral wanted dead or alive and of course, as we know, only one officer, now former officer, Brett Hankinson was charged and the other two uh, officers, Jonathan Mattingly and Miles Crossgrove were not charged. And in a really sick turn of the event, turn of events, one of the officers is actually suing Brianna Taylor's boyfriend because he basically feels like his life has been ruined by everybody putting all of this information out there about him and the things that Taylor's boyfriend has said about him. I'm assuming it's Mattingly because he was the one that actually did get shot by the boyfriend. The whole thing is ridiculous. But the one officer 
said, and this is Cosgrove, the apartment was completely dark. He saw vivid white flashes, which would probably be the firing off from the weapon, a distorted shadowy mass of figure in front of me, which quite frankly could have, not that it wasn't bad enough that it was Brianna, but it could have been a child, a grandma, anybody. He fired his handgun 16 times, according to ballistics evidence, at vivid white flashes and a distorted shadowy mass. Now, he even admits, Mattingly, who recovered from his wound to the leg, said in an interview last month, Taylor didn't do anything to deserve a death sentence. Well, quite frankly, since you all were there to serve a drug warrant, and not even on either of those two individuals, but merely to serve a warrant, even if you were there to take anybody in, technically nobody you would have encountered, even if it was the person who, well, now that we, we know now, was actually in jail at the time, those, the charge that they were charged with didn't carry a death sentence either. The woman goes on to say that she and the jurors, I'm assuming that there's some that she has kept into contact with, or maybe it was even that day because I recall A.G. Cameron coming out and doing his press conference within hours of the grand jury rendering his decision. So who knows procedurally how that worked in terms of when they were released. But she basically said that she felt like um, she she just was bothered by the fact that he used the words, and I remember because I watched the press conference, that he used the words that the grand jury basically agreed with him that this is the way things should go. Hankinson being charged with the endangerment charges and everybody else walking away. So in her words, she said, I felt like he was trying to throw the blame on somebody else that he felt like we as jurors, we weren't going to speak out, she said. He made it feel like it was all our fault and it wasn't. And again, these individuals are speaking um, under the umbrella of anonymity because as grand jurors, they are supposed to be um, anonymous and also just and this is just for people who would be like oh why don't they show their faces well because they probably could be in a lot of danger and that's why they have um attorneys as well and i would have advised them to do that especially if they were going to speak out this is a highly charged situation and you're speaking out as it relates to police officers so one thousand percent you would, if, if at all possible, unless somebody breaks a seal, which of course would be illegal, you wouldn't know who I was either. I, I do not knock them for that. So as we know, sort of as the denouement to that, that um, Breonna Taylor's mother is asking for a special prosecutor to look at it and all of that. But I, unfortunately, given the state that they're in and kind of the political climate there, and um, I could also see 
other people coming in and sort of wanting this buried in terms of political climate from a political climate standpoint. I think that ultimately what is going to happen is that they'll be like, look, we gave you a settlement, which I don't blame them for taking because they would have gotten it either way, whether they did it now or 10 months from now, either way they were going to get an, an offer because the the state knows that they had nowhere to go with this, arguing against them in court in terms of wrongful death. And had this been put in front of a jury, the amount of money that the mother or uh, the you know the estate of Taylor's family could have been awarded by a jury, especially with the right jury, could have been astronomical. Because if you get the right jury that feels like somebody has been wronged, especially if they are maimed or killed, oof, it, it is scary how much money they will give. I mean, if just for an example, look up the case with uh, McDonald's and the elderly woman with the coffee when she burned herself you know coffee that's supposed to be hot coffee where she stuck the hot coffee cup between her own legs herself and then of course you know it spilled and she got third degree burns and all of that kind of stuff and yes there's all kinds of nuances about maybe it was too hot and blah 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 and the individuals at McDonald's didn't hand, handle it the greatest, which also made the jury hate them even more. You know, the big corporate fat cat and the poor old lady. But, you know, a different kind of victim, certainly one that was probably younger just as a start, would have gotten, probably gotten a vastly different result. Because, you know, some of that was just, eh. so, but again, I say all that to say that under the right circumstances, good lawyer, good picks, um, setting up the jury and the settlement that Taylor's family got would be the least of it. They, I mean, uh, uh, the right jury would have tried to bankrupt the damn state. Now, I don't know if Kentucky has um, has limits on these types of recoveries, and they probably do, and cases like this are probably why they should, because they would have gotten hosed. So this settlement would have happened anyway. So for those who feel, oh, well, taking the settlement screwed up the case, not at all. This case was going to go this way no matter what because it was already, the, the wheels were already in motion for it to go the way it did in terms of, and now this is just my opinion, in terms of the prosecution making up their minds that this was, the, uh, this was kind of the overall direction of how they wanted to charge it, not making a big grand pronouncement of overriding corruption, which is what convicting all of them would have done and putting a really, really big spotlight on 
the police in Louisville and probably just the, the entire red state of Kentucky. And I know that, or I suspect that because back in June, all three of these individuals weren't fired. Just the one who just happened to be the only one that charges were put in front of a grand jury to consider. Mattingly and Cosgrove weren't fired, but they also blindly shot into a, into a dark room. So you pick this guy just because he did the exact same thing, but just happened to do it from a window because, I don't know, maybe all three of them couldn't fit into the doorway of a small apartment. So he went at it from a different angle, following along with exactly what his fellow officers were doing. Yet he is the only one who gets fired and just so happens to be the only one who the grand jury was presented information about to potentially charge. So how this whole thing was going to work and unfold absent totally independent parties stepping in to disrupt the flow, so to speak, that was already set into motion. And I'm not saying this from, you know, some cuckoo conspiracy type standpoint. You listen to me long enough, you know, I'm not that chick. I'm saying that because the information is right in front of your face. Now, you can choose not to look at it that way. But they, as far as I'm concerned, A.G. Cameron was so not discreet about how this was handled. Maybe he thought he was being, but being discreet or uh, somehow not an obvious I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, somehow not obvious. But he essentially gave a freaking roadmap. Now, we may not have known the roadmap on the front end because it's like, okay, one of them got fired and then we didn't hear anything else about the case for like two months and then suddenly there's a grand jury and then a week later, you know, we get the press conference and yada, yada. But once, because sometimes you don't really know until you get all the pieces together, but once the grand jury was impaneled, the press conference happened and more information over the next few days started to come out about what exactly the information was, what what information the grand jury was given, and more importantly, what information they weren't, what options they were given for charging, and again, more importantly, what options they weren't, at that point, then it is very easy to lay it, just lay it literally on a blank piece of paper and draw your own dots and connect them. Because once that last piece was put into place, the roadmap became incredibly clear on how we got there and the fact that none of it was an accident. So... That is the latest on the Breonna Taylor case. I don't know, honestly, and I, I suspect, 
I, I, I just don't know. It's very frustrating, but I, I suspect that there will never be anything that happens with that case that meets any level of satisfaction, you know, justice wise from a broader perspective for anyone because obviously there is the settlement and that's sort of like you know just kind of a kind of little punishment if you will more punitive although it's you know they i'm sure they did it as compensatory you know lifetime and earnings and you know loss of um you know just loss of everything with their daughter and all of that all of that is quantified um, by attorneys when we're coming up with these numbers. So I get that. But as far as the broader issue, seeing justice in a way that makes you feel like people are paying for what they did, I don't think we'll see that. Even in the court of public opinion, that's not really going to affect these guys' lives as long as they stay in the bosom of where they live and have families and whatever. They're in Louisville, Kentucky. The odds are in their favor that they'll be fine. This is not like O.J. Simpson and him becoming like a public pariah because it's, you know, what he did, well, let's say allegedly, um, you know, people have very strong feelings about it or whatever. Part of what keeps this going in terms of any of, uh, in terms of someone like OJ feeling, like feeling the actual ugliness of what it means to be beat up on by the public, because even though you were free, People are going to chain you and jail you just with how they treat you compared to what you were used to being like a Hall of Fame athlete. O.J. Simpson chooses to, in a lot of ways, still live his life very publicly, which then, of course, puts him in the arena for the public ridicule. If he did not, and just paid whatever he could from his settlement and then went and lived off of his very generous pension, which nobody can touch. It, it wouldn't, he, he wouldn't even notice because he still has friends. He has girlfriends. He has a, he has a family. I don't know who deals with him and who he doesn't. I don't know about his youngest, the, the two younger ones, Nicole's children, but certainly if the trial, the, the trial situation is any indication, his older son and daughter, the ones who were basically adults when this all went down, they were still there for him. George Zimmerman, same thing. Yes, public pariah, but if he were to just go away quietly, get a job and you know, live in, because again, he's in Florida, another state that certainly if you are on their right side of the political spectrum, you could do whatever freak you want. I mean, and remember, he was not convicted. So he's living, if you, if he just went on and worked and lived in a state where he was not convicted and a substantial number of people, because again, we know that many of these cases 
came down to black and white. If he just lived his little, you know, white adjacent happy ass life and, you know, went to work every day and stayed off the internet and stopped with the ridiculous lawsuits with the creepy lawyer dude or whatever, nobody would care and his life would be fine. I'm not saying the rest of us wouldn't care, but the rest of us aren't really going to have a tremendous impact on his life in Doohickville, Florida with whoever he manages to shack up with and procreate with and whatever, because if he put himself in a situation where he was surrounded by his own and just lived his life in his quiet corner of the world, he'd be fine. He really would. And so I think, and, and so I use those examples to say that for the rest of us who don't believe that justice was done in the Trayvon Martin case, for individuals who were affected by the O.J. Simpson case, for those of us, again, who feel some kind of way about uh, the Breonna Taylor situation, while we may feel like justice was not done and may never be done okay we're just i mean we're just gonna have to feel that way but those people will still go on and live their lives and that is the insult because we know that that's why the jail part something some pound of flesh means so much to people it's not about vindictiveness. It's about this notion, or it, it's not even a notion. It is about the fact that when there isn't, and we know that fundamentally, unless that person puts themselves in a situation like George Zimmerman constantly doing stuff to get in the press, they will go on and live fairly unaffected lives. I, I mean, that's just, and, and they still might even after they go to jail, because if they don't, you know, none of these guys are, would obviously get life. I mean, I would be surprised if Hankinson got more than a year, if he even gets any active time. Quite frankly, if as I've and I'm not going to go deep into it today, as I've uh, told you all before, if I were his attorney, uh, we would be fighting this like going to the mat on this, not even pleading guilty. Worst case scenario, he gets convicted of some misdemeanors, but <clears throat> so at any rate, yes, a pound of flesh would be nice. I just don't think that we're going to get it and it, we have good reason not to be satisfied with that. But it, there also just isn't a whole lot that can be done about that. And I hate to end on that note, but it, what more is there to say about it is the truth. And that's what we do here, even when we're having fun. That wasn't fun, but you know what I mean. Okay, guys, so I am going to go. Thank you very much for once again hanging with me. I do not take your time or your support and listenership for granted. If you all have iTunes, 
please go over there, give me five stars, a review, you know, just tell me what you like, what you don't like, I can take it, don't be rude. So, <laughs> um, no, I'm serious, don't be rude. We're also on iHeartRadio, Amazon, Stitcher, Breaker, uh, Google Podcasts, um, just wherever you listen. But those ones where you can leave reviews, super important to me. And I appreciate it. Now, you can find me, as the info box will tell you, you can find me on social media, that is particularly Instagram and Twitter, at Let's Be Honest JJ. That's L E T S B E H O N E S T J J for just Jonda. Follow along, especially in the tweets. We have some fun. Instagram, of course. I like to try and get some stuff up a couple times a day. I, I did in the past couple of days, but I explained that earlier. Also, go into my DMs. Leave me messages. Let me know what you are thinking about, what you want to talk about. I am happy to look into it, research it. You know, let's get it going. If you are somebody who... Um, deals with pop culture or the shows or any of the things that we talk about, politics, all of that. Um, I'd love to talk to you. So, and, and certainly, as you know, I enjoy the live episodes when we have time to do them. So that avenue is open. I absolutely love interacting with people who listen to the show. You also can join my Facebook group, which is called the Fashion and Drama Diary. So it's a bit of a different name, but that's been going for five years. So obviously I didn't want to change the name of that uh, because I've had people who have been loyal from day one. But the link is also in the info box to make things easier for you to come on and join in on the fun. We're on there every day. That is something where we talk and interact constantly, especially if there's something good and juicy going down. Beyond that, I will see, well, I, I won't see you. Beyond that, I will talk to you again tomorrow as we continue nonstop November. I promise to be a little more awake. Travel, you know, traveling takes a lot out of you. And I, I also drove. I maybe should have mentioned that part. So again, a little tired. So um, as always, if you are thinking about it and want to talk about it, chances are I want to talk about it with you. So let's be honest together. Good night. <laughs>